My conversation partner today is David French, an old friend. We're having something of a digital reunion uh, in this conversation. He is a senior editor for The Dispatch, which I'm getting to know very well, and was formerly a senior writer for National Review. Those are some conservative chops, uh, David. Of course, <laughs> you can also read him in Time and I think a few other places. He is a New York Times bestselling author and uh, a graduate of Harvard Law School, uh, past president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a former lecturer at Cornell Law School, served as a senior counsel for the American Center for Law and Justice, where we last sat together too many years ago, and at the Alliance Defending Freedom. David is a former major in the United States Army Reserve. Thank you, sir, for your service. In 2007, he deployed to Iraq, serving in Diyala province as squadron judge advocate for the 2nd Squadron, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment. David, I always have to be careful with that because <laughs> preachers find it impossible to pronounce cavalry. We always want to pronounce it Calvary. <laughs> oh, I know. Theological reasons. <laughs> well, you know, when you grow up in the church, you sort of have the same thing, and uh, so I was always saved by that. Uh, I, I, when I first deployed, I was caught saying Calvary on occasion, ah. <laughs> and and uh, was swiftly rebuked. So yeah, when you when you grow up as a Christian and you've heard Calvary far more than you've heard Cavalry. Uh, the, the mistake sometimes just slips out of your mouth. Did, did you catch uh, that it found its way into the defense, uh, the, the uh, President Trump's defense in his second impeachment? Uh, I seem to remember that. Yeah, one of the attorneys, I can't remember which one, made a point that uh, some of the insurrectionists or would-be insurrectionists uh, had weren't calling themselves the cavalry, they were calling themselves Calvary, which was a sacred reference. I mm -hmm. I found that dubious, but anyway, <laughs> uh, you were awarded the Bronze Star. Thank you again, sir, and, and well deserved. Uh, David lives and works in Franklin, Tennessee, with his wife Nancy and uh, their three children. I've got to tell you, David, I read the French press, your newsletter now, like I drink coffee religiously. <laughs> Thank you for the excellent commentary. And I catch you almost any time you appear on Morning Joe. So there's there's a caffeine element to all of this. <laughs> uh, and you do uh, feed us with a lot of intellectual, moral and spiritual energy through your commentary. Thank you very much for it. Uh, I know you fairly well, but our constellation of uh, Bonhoefferites probably don't as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? And I mean, let's go right back ab initio. Uh, start <laughs> from the beginning. Uh, well, I was born in Opelika, Alabama, which mm. for those who don't know Opelika, there's very few listeners who don't know, who aren't intimately familiar with Opelika, Alabama. It is a 
small town right outside of, uh, it's right by Auburn University. My parents were Auburn students. My dad was in grad school. Uh, my mom was an undergrad. And I um, grew up in Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, and mainly Kentucky. So I like to tell people that my um, Southeastern Conference football fandom, I come by it quite honestly. I think I went <laughs> to my first SEC football game. Um, in first grade in Baton Rouge at night in Death Valley. So that's a <laughs> that's a good inauguration to Southeastern football. Um, and then I went to college at Lipscomb University, Christian College in Nashville. Went to law school at Harvard, as you said. And then my my legal career, I can I guess it's the it's the legal career that you have when you don't know what you want to do when you grow up. Hmm. So it is lots of different things. Hmm. <laughs> I've been a <laughs> A litigator uh, for a big firm. I've taught law school. I've been a um, head of a nonprofit. I've been a litigator for constitutional issues. I've been a JAG officer. Now I'm a journalist uh, and a podcaster. <laughs> so it's and, and I'm going to guess a sometimes lay preacher. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On, Have you taken well, to I actually? I actually was an interim youth pastor at one point uh, in my that's life. That's right. So, I do recall that now. Yeah, I. In all the way back in the late 90s, um, our youth pastor left, um, and while we spent almost a year finding another one, I was the I was the youth pastor. <laughs> so well, there you go. I don't there know how go. many commercial litigators um, have youth pastor experience, but I, it's helpful. <laughs> I know one. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> one in addition to you. Uh, oh wow. And uh, so I, I, I know one, but only one of the thousands of uh, clerical colleagues that I've kept company with <laughs> over the decades. But now, let me ask you about your spiritual, religious, cultural formation, because mm -hmm. as I know you, your evangelical upbringing is not incidental to who you are. It's, right. it's very much a part of who you are. Can you tell us about that dimension? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, I used to be sort of embarrassed of my testimony, which was I had no testimony. <laughs> I just always remember believing in Jesus. You know, I grew up in a Christian family uh, with a Christian extended family and a real legacy and a history of faith. And, and uh, you know, when you get a little older, like high school, college, people will say, especially in evangelical circles, you know, what's, what's your testimony? And a lot of people have some pretty stirring testimonies, <laughs> whereas mine was, well, I, I literally don't remember a time where I didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't regularly in church. And I have since that time realized that uh, uh, not having the amazing or not having the dramatic conversion story does not mean that you won't end up having a pretty dramatic life <laughs> in mm. other ways. But I grew up in the Churches of Christ. Uh, the what, what, I guess the best way to describe it is uh, for those who want to distinguish between the Churches of Christ and the United Church of Christ, which is the mainline denomination, is the Acapella Churches of Christ, down, uh, relatively fundamentalist uh, upbringing in in a church centered mainly in the South. You know, Tennessee, Alabama, Texas, Mississippi. You're going to see a lot of Churches of Christ, and. Um, after I graduated from college, I just really, uh, I didn't, I grew up really not agreeing with Church of Christ theology. And um, after I graduated from college, I kind of began a spiritual journey that 
as as I as I always tell people, I was predestined to end up in the PCA, the Presbyterian <laughs> Church of America. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was predestined to be an Arminianist, but oh well. Um, A nice confession there, though. That right, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> the only Methodist evangelical I know who was predestined to be so didn't uh, elect it. Um, and, and I'm curious because, uh, and again, you know, we have folks who join us in this podcast who are uh, informed uh, mm-hmm. on, on the church world and denominational distinctives and, and so on. You mentioned your formation was in the non-instrumental Church of Christ. Yes, yes. Uh, so you didn't use instruments. Uh, and uh, which was super uh, unfortunate because I cannot sing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you were probably drowned out by a few good ones, though. Boy, yes, I was. In I a was. few of those settings where uh, there's some uh, outstanding vocalists. Uh, but they're also a, um, as I understand it, a non creedal church. Mm hmm. Uh, and. Um, so you, you you said you didn't always agree with them theologically. What were some yeah. of those? Uh, where were you dissenting on theological points? Well, so the Church of Christ. Now, when I'm talking about the Church of Christ I grew up in, I want to be real cl- really clear that the church has changed a lot. Um, so that you can go to a Church of Christ, say, in suburban Nashville, and most of, most of them will... Um, appear to you like any other evangelical church, just without instruments. Um, teaching is very similar. The culture is very similar. But when I was growing up, it was it was quite different. Um, the church was sectarian in sort of the truest sense of the term in that it it believed it was the Church of Christ, as in the, the um, New Testament church essentially had been through more than a millennia of apostasy uh, surrounding issues like instrumental music and uh, predestination, for example, and other other perceived grave errors of the church until it was restored. So the Church of Christ was part of the restorationist movement um, until the true church was restored in the 19th century. And I'm, you know, making oversimplifying all of this, but this is sort of the general arc of what you were taught. And so as a sec, as sectarian, um, you would not call yourself a denomination, absolutely not, because it is the Church of Christ. Um, that you were taught that people who believed, uh, you know, in creedal churches were um, in extreme versions of Church of Christ teaching with that they are not saved, they're not Christians at all. And these were things that I disagreed with. Uh, and so I, I'll never forget. Even as a young person. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was uh, ornery. Hmm. Um, I, I remember the elders in back in sixth grade, the elders gave each sixth grader a really a uh, very pretty Bible, and I remember reading it from cover to cover and having a lot of discontent <laughs> after it hmm. and after reading it. Uh, like, I guess the last thing you want to, to, the last person you want to hear from in life is a 12-year-old who thinks they figured things out. But <laughs> uh, I was, you know, I was discontent, and and uh, I, I, you know, so, yeah, I wasn't taught sort of a system systemic theology, but the things that I I was taught, and it was very, very, very works-based. So Mm. it was an idea that you could lose your salvation. I mean, that that 
Um, and, and it didn't necessarily take much to lose your salvation. So, you know, one of the things that you would see often is people getting baptized and then frequently rebaptized, for example, or uh, frequent recommission, you know, recommitments to faith. Mm. And sometimes, you know, like these very public re, uh, renewed commitments can be valuable, especially if a person has spent a, a lot of time kind of wandering in the wilderness. But this was a, a, uh, a belief system that was, and again, a lot of, you know, younger Church of Christ folks who grew up in the Church of Christ that exists now would probably say, what are you talking about? I've not heard any of this, but it was very much like that. And and so it was really not until college that I was introduced and at, at a Church of Christ college from dissenters at a Church of Christ college, really introduced to grace as a coherent concept um, that I really began to um, move my discontent with a lot of Church of Christ teaching into active exploration of uh, sort of the larger body of historic Christian theology, you know, mm -hmm. reading Aquinas, you know, uh, reading Calvin, reading Luther, reading, you, you know, know, these great real Christian broad leaders. for a Church of Christ guy. Yeah. So, um, and that's when, you know, I really launched on my journey and I, I determined in when I was in college that I was not in the, I was not a Church of Christ kid, <laughs> but hmm. I, out of respect for my parents, I stayed in the Church of Christ and also because I didn't know where else to go. Um, but then when I got into law school and I joined a Christian fellowship that most of them had never even heard of the Church of Christ um, is when I really became much more sort of engaged with the wider Christian world. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, we were, we were uh, amusing ourselves there a few minutes ago with the Calvinist uh, Arminian uh, Methodist Presbyterian divide, but uh, one of the things that attracted me uh, to the Methodist church was its concept of ordaining clergy to the full ecumenical expression of the church, not to mm -hmm. one denomination, but to the whole church. And when you say you weren't really a member of the Church of Christ, I would argue that perhaps you actually were. <laughs> the true Church of Christ that is much yeah. broader, more expansive right. than any one sect within it. The other thing that fascinates me about uh, the Church of Christ uh, is its common uh, branch or thread with uh, the LDS Church. Yeah. There's a common uh, intersection there along the way of history. And that's always intrigued me. Uh, Don't and, say that out loud at a Church of Christ. Yeah, pardon me for saying so, but uh, <laughs> it's just an interesting observation that I've made. But we won't explore that here because we do want to get on to another uh, subject. But I think you've established your bona fides here uh, for exploring it because you probably know... Uh, the crisis uh, more closely than many uh, because of your formation religiously, because of your place in the conservative universe, uh, and because of uh, your own intellectual rigor uh, on, on this sort of thing, and that is 
the subject of Christian nationalism mm -hmm. or religious nationalism generally. Uh, you know, you've written about expressions of that um, in the Islamic world. It's certainly not unique to the Christian world by any means. Uh, there's Hindu nationalism in uh, India and, and, and other parts of that region. There's uh, certainly Islamic nationalism in many, many forms. But there's, there have also been historically and, and, uh, and in the moment uh, expressions of nationalism that are distinctly Christian or at mm -hmm. least tied to Christianity. You know, this is a freewheeling discussion here. You know, we're not lecturing on the subject. Sure. We're talking about it. I'd like to suggest that it is a current crisis within American evangelicalism. Can we talk a little bit about your perspective on it? How do you see that particular problem, if you see a problem at all? Yeah, so I do, I do see a problem with Christian nationalism, but I don't see it mainly as theological. So mm. I, I'll, I'll put it this way. Please um, say more on that. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, we have to define our terms when we're talking about Christian nationalism. And, and I, one of the best sort of single sentence definitions I've heard comes from an uh, individual named Matthew McCulloch. And, and I learned about uh, McCulloch's um, definition from Baylor University historian Thomas Kidd. And I just really like this. Um, it's an, a quote, an understanding of American identity and significance held by Christians, wherein the nation is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. Mm. So, in other words, it puts the nation in a prime position for understanding um, God's purpose, and that God's purpose is, is manifested through the nation. And so, Kidd says that nationalism provides a an exaggerated, I like this quote, an exaggerated transcendent meaning to American history. Mm. Um, and this is something that explains, for example, why people get so angry about uh, critiquing parts of American history, because if America has sort of put been placed in your mind as being a central actor, the United States of America is a central actor in God's world historical purpose, then further exploration of American flaws tends to undermine that transcendent meaning, if that, if that makes sense. Mm. And so... But why, why would I say that I don't think the primary, that that is a theological concept is really locked in with people? It's because I think that a lot of folks kind of have an instinctive view that that's wrong. So, you know, if you were going to ask somebody, do you, is, you know, do you place more importance on serving Jesus or serving your country? Even people who by their actions are Christian nationalists would say serving Jesus. Mm. Um you know, e even if you had, like, say, a pastor of a church who surrounds his property with American flags or in the month of July or leads faith and freedom services close to July 4th, they'd agree with the, you know, notion that American churches owe their allegiance to Christ over country. There are these things called patriot churches where it really kind of intentionally blurs the line, and there, but there are few of those. But right. here's where I think that Christian nationalism actually is. 
uh, very, very, very real. And that is, I think it's a, um, again, I'm going to quote Thomas, uh, Thomas Kidd, which I think he just hits the nail on the head, that Christian nationalism is more of a visceral reaction than a rationally chosen stance. In other words, hmm. it's a set of emotional commitments more than theological commitments. And what ends up happening is that we then move our uh, emotional commitment and, and jam our emotional commitment into the theology, and it's often a very bad fit. And so um, I think that what's ended up happening is even though people will say, yeah, um, the fate of America is, you know, the, it's got Christ over country, absolutely. But then we'll say, but Christ has chosen to use this country, and this country is in Christ's purposes, uh, that if this country fails, then in many ways, Christ's purposes could be frustrated. Hmm. Or if this country changes its character, then Christ's purposes will be frustrated. And there's a deep sense of conviction and feeling about that. So I draw that distinction between a set of theological propositions that really, if you put them to people, they'd say, no, I don't, I don't know that I'm with that. But running right up against a deep emotional sort of sense that America is unique, uniquely great, uniquely connected to God's divine plan. And, you know, I'm going to remind the folks who are dropping in to listen uh, to our conversation that uh, you're listening not just uh, to a military man here, uh, and not just to a well-decorated military man, but uh, to... Uh, a military legal expert, uh, former, uh, or uh, are you currently serving as a judge advocate? No, nope, I uh, I left in uh, 2014. Ah, okay. Well, enough time under your belt uh, to establish <laughs> you as as an expert uh, uh, there, and uh, so I don't think anyone would doubt your patriotism, although. I find that when you raise questions like this, and I think this probably goes to your and Thomas Kidd's uh, point here, which, by the way, thank you for drawing my attention to his uh, treatment of this, because I, I read Kidd when I did my doctoral work, but uh, I didn't come across this uh, part of it. So thank you for that. Uh, and this emotional dimension, I suppose... Uh, results in the eclipse of reason uh, over and over again. <laughs> because I, I, when we simply raise these questions, I think I've watched you uh, being attacked for that. I certainly have been. And the attacks are visceral. Uh, they're often not a critique, but actually an insult. That somehow yeah. by raising these questions, we are... Worse Woke. than unpatriotic, <laughs> we are anti-patriotic. Right. Uh, how do you how do you deal with the the criticism for for even questioning some of this? Um, well, you know, it's it's interesting that a lot of the criticism falls the criticism falls into distinct kind of different buckets. Um, one bucket, sort of the most common, it's just flat out, flat out insults, um, accusations of um, lack of patriotism, or what's even more common now is that you're woke, so that you know mm -hmm. if you are 
criticizing. Um, I mean, on a, on a range of issues. Let's let's say familiar. For example, if you um, are have greater concern about police brutality than you used to, you're woke. If you have greater concern about uh, racial in, inequities in the United States, then you're woke. Um, whether or not you agree with sort of far left ideologies like critical race theory, but you're just you, you're you're kind of written off as oh you've just gone woke, and so some of those are some of the easier issues to deal with in the sense that there's nothing you can really do about them because um, they're intended to be insults. They're intended to be things to just kind of silence you. And so you just have to kind of ignore it and push through and hope to be persuasive to people. The, um, you know, and then there's another category where people have engaged in where there's thoughtful engagement. And I welcome that. I love that. That's fantastic. In fact, it's through thoughtful engagement that I learn an awful lot. And so, you know, there, I put a, you know, there's just a difference between this sort of this thoughtful engagement for people who either want to persuade you or uh, are open to being persuaded by you. I love that. This sort of avalanche of toxic insults and, and, and scorn on the internet. I won't say there's anything pleasant about it, but you kind of put that in a different category in your mind and you realize that that's sort of a product of our really heavily polarized time, but you just got to keep plowing forward and keep speaking. And you know what? Sometimes some of the same people who used to be, you know, uh, sending uh, invective your way actually change their mind. It does happen. It's it's not as if everybody's unpersuadable. So, but yeah, there's nothing pleasant about all that invective, but you just have to kind of understand the times in which we live. Hmm. And you're an attorney, so uh, I think attorneys have a better uh, discipline in terms of making an argument than preachers do. We tend to be circular. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I always have great admiration for uh, litigators because I watch them lay out their linear argument all the way to its conclusion. I don't mean to catch you off guard here, and, and again, uh, you know, uh, this is not a lecture, it's a conversation, but if you were to lay out an argument contrary to the kind of um, exaggerated patriot church theology that, that places the country you served at risk of your own life uh, in this kind of exaggerated role in, in the, the divine scheme of things, what, what, what would basically be the trajectory of that argument for you? Well, so I think there's a, a lot of it depends on where is somebody coming from when they have this emotional connection. So, Sometimes people are coming from coming into the argument about America's sort of divinely ordained greatness with a, a view of the country that is um, in a country in its past that is just flawed, just extremely flawed. And so one of the first things that you have to do to sort of like reset the conversation is reset. You got to meet them where they are. It's, you know, reset the understanding um, about this nation and its actions, which is not to say that this nation to then 
turn them into say, oh, the America's awful, America's terrible, America's awful. No, to understand like the America has had some incredibly, has done some wonderful things and has done some dreadful things. If you had to sort of sum up uh, American history, it's sort of a battle between that spirit of 1619. 1619 is famously when the first slaves came to North American shores. In 1776, where we declared these really aspir transcendent aspirational national values of protecting the unalienable rights of man. And we have gone back and forth, and sometimes we take three steps forward and two steps back, and then four steps forward and five steps back. And, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but sort of this idea that says that, you know, we're uniquely we're uniquely good, uniquely good is something. And so what that does is it leads to a sense of panic. If someone thinks that the country is moving in a direction that they don't like, then then there's this just incredible emotional response to this that's kind of unmoored from historical perspective. The other thing is, um, you know, one of the things is you, you got to just go back and you got to talk about what is a godly uh, because we, we always set things up as binaries, like you're either going to love this country, or you're going to hate this country. And you're, you know, you either respect our founders or you hate our founders. And it just gets so back and forth into a competing streams. And, and so, you know, one of the things you can do is say, okay, wait, what is a healthy patriotism? What does it look like? Let's, let's, let's walk through this. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in um, the book, The Four Loves, you know, which centered around agape, the love of God, eros, sexual love, fi philos, philo, however you want to pronounce it, you know how to pronounce it, friendship. <laughs> and uh, then the last one, uh, uh, S-T-O-R-G-E, affections, storge, stor, however you want to, I, I, I do not know my, uh, my Greek <laughs> pronunciations, <laughs> but You're he good. talks You're about, good. okay, good. He talks about, um, patriotism in this last category, this affection category. And he, he breaks you down into really three, um, three kinds of, um, three kinds of, of, uh, patriotisms, one of which is very, very healthy. And the other two are, are dangerous. Um, and the healthy one is this sort of this love of home, this love of the place where he grew up, or, and I'm quoting from the four loves, a place where he grew up or the places that have been our homes that, uh, as the family offers us the first first step beyond self-love, so love of this community, love of this home offers the first step beyond family selfishness. And he says, patriotism of this kind is not aggressive. It asks to be let alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. And the other thing that's really good about it is he says, if any mind which has a penny worth of imagination, it produces a good attitude towards foreigners. Because how can I love my home without coming to realize that other men no less rightly love theirs? And I love the way he puts it, because what he's talking about is there is this sort of natural sense of affection for your home and your national community that is healthy, that is good. It's a step out of selfishness. It's a step into selflessness. But then he goes on and he says, there's a love of country that can lead to a particular attitude to our country's past, as he says. And he says, the actual history of every country is full of shabby and even shameful doings. The heroic stories, if taken to be typical, can give a false impression of your country and are often themselves open to serious historical criticism. And then he says, there's this most dangerous permutation. And, and see if this sounds familiar. He says, 
And it's a firm, prosaic belief that our known, own nation in sober fact has long been and still is markedly superior to all others. Hmm. He says, this belief can produce asses that kick and bite. And on the lunatic fringe, it can just shade off into popular racialism, which Christianity and science equally forbid. And so I think you can see how one of the things that you're doing is you're not telling people don't be patriotic. Um, and, and, and you don't want to reject this sort of sense of patriotism because there's a healthy part of that. But then what ends up happening is we go further and further and further into this sort of uh, affection that becomes unhealthy, this affection that becomes a manifestation often even of arrogance. My mind is drawn to what our namesake, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, spoke about or, or uh, offered uh, as a thought, uh, and that was that one's love of country could even take one to the point of praying for its defeat, as he did for Nazified Germany. Mm -hmm. Because only in that could it actually survive, that it had been lost to the point where love for country required uh, its death in order for it essentially to experience a resurrection and to return, uh, you know, to the, to the community of nations in a salutary sense rather than in a malignant uh, toxic sense. So, you know, uh, supporting country, at least in Bonhoeffer's thinking, did not always mean def defending it, uh, you know, without, without boundaries right? Uh, to no end, uh, that there comes a time where you at least admit to your nation's faults so that it can be improved. And in that right. way... And express your your love for it and right and the and the person who is nationalist and and has wrapped their religious faith deep within their nationalism it's not that they will never get to the point where they might acknowledge that truth but they're going to be dragged kicking and screaming and might be the last people to get to that point um because i don't i don't think that you know they're they're I, i've never heard somebody who says Credibly, for example, if you're going back to the Bonhoeffer point that, well, you know, German patriots, they, if they were going to be patriots, they should have mm. supported the Nazi mm. regime. Mm. Uh, you know, that's sort of like the world historic extreme example of when you don't support the regime, right? I mean, like that's, mm. that's sort of the paradigmatic example. Um, but there's a lot of instances short of Nazism where you're going to become, you're going to have to become, and you must become a, a real critic of your nation's choices. Um, and sometimes, you know, of your nation's cultural trends and, and uh, your nation's history. You know, I wonder, David, do you happen to have Gerhard Kittel on your shelf? Uh, New Test, uh, pardon me, uh, Dictionary of New Testament Theology by Kittel? I'm beginning to feel that this is a glaring omission. <laughs> <laughs> well, nearly every evangelical uh, 
minister, Bible teacher, and probably scholar, uh, generally uh, speaking, will have Kittle on his or her shelf. In my formation as an evangelical minister from Bible college to uh, doctoral work in the seminary, I went to Kittle. I was trained to go to Kittle. Right. Uh, and it was only very late in life, after age 50, after 35 years uh, in ordained ministry, that I discovered that Gerhard Kittle uh, was not only Adolf Hitler's uh, kind of resident theologian that gave him the theologs, you know, the supposed uh, theological rationale for genocide, but uh, even after the collapse of the Nazi state, remained a faithful Nazi, feeling it was his patriotic duty, and died in prison uh, following the war, uh, imprisoned by the Allies, of course, and uh, died uh, committed to the vision that Adolf Hitler had laid out because he felt it was his patriotic duty, and as a Christian, that was his obligation, uh, was to remain a patriot. So, you know, these are not exaggerated, fanciful notions here. Sure. They found their way into reality. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to overstate what happened on January the 6th, all, although it was appalling, it was repugnant, and it was, in my estimation anyway, extremely dangerous for the country. I wouldn't say it rises to the crisis of the Third Reich uh, in Germany, but I do know some colleagues, fellow pastors that I've kept company with for decades, who are defending what happened on January the 6th at the Capitol because they cannot admit to being wrong. And that it seems to me that here lies a certain theological crisis in all of this. And I, I, and I, I agree with your perspective, uh, but I don't think it's without theological content. And, and here's where I would argue that, that for the Christian, our whole faith journey begins by admitting that we can, and, uh, that we can be wrong and are wrong that we have failed God, we are sinners, uh, and we name our sins and we repent of them. So it, it seems to me in, um, inconsistent. If, if one calls himself or herself a Christian patriot, that he or she cannot admit that the thing to which we are wed or committed could be wrong, that in fact, America has a history of wrongs. When you were in the field defending our country, was that any conflict for you to, to think, well, you're defending an imperfect nation? Um, I, no, I don't think so. I don't I don't, I've never had the view that military service in defense of a country depends upon um, 
that military service in defense of a country depends upon you having sort of a uh, a view of your nation's perfection or even mm. close to perfection. Mm. Um, I think it's p- part of your citizenship in a nation, and it's a it's a valuable part of citizenship in your community uh, to serve. Now, that doesn't mean that you abandon all of your um, into your, your uh, moral discernment and just blindly salute and follow orders. In fact, our military provides for conscientious objection. Uh, our military actually provides for the ability to, for example, disobey unlawful orders and provides for you to have an obligation to disobey unlawful orders. Uh, but I'm not a pacifist. And uh, as a member of this community and somebody who's not a pacifist, I also don't think that Christians should necessarily benefit from um, the sacrifices of others um, for and, and enjoy the blessings of liberty provided by the sacrifices of others while not participating in that sacrifice. So I never had much of a, uh, a sense that there was a conflict between my faith and my enlistment in the military. Um, I've never been all of all that convinced by arguments to that effect. Um, now, I do think pacifism, for example, is a has a long and honorable tradition in Christianity. Uh, I just disagree with it. Well, you, well, I would argue there are few voices that would argue that Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. I don't, right. especially given his cooperation with the conspiracy to bring down the Hitler government. Absolutely. Uh, so I think you and he would have a lot of areas of agreement on that point. And, and I agree with you. Uh, and, and I applaud your service. And, I, and especially, you know, you're, you, you're not unique in the sense that you didn't need um, a fanciful view of a perfect nation in order uh, to give so much in its defense. Uh, that's really been my experience with most uh, military, uh, you know, folks who have served in uniform. They, right. they tend to have a very realistic appreciation for the country, and I admire that. And maybe they even have a better perspective than the average person because you got to weigh all that stuff when you're making the decision that, that you made. Uh, to don the uniform and put yourself in harm's way for the benefit of others. Well, man, I wish this conversation could go on forever, but I know you've got other things to do, including (laughs) writing your next uh, piece for French press, which I can't wait for, as normally (laughs) I'm scrolling through looking for it when it it arrives. But before I let you go, would you tell folks, uh, I gave you, you know, the formal introduction, but what are you up to lately? What's your project for the moment? What are you really investing yourself in? And how can folks connect with you and and benefit from your product? Uh, I am uh, at the dispatch, thedispatch.com. I have a, uh, a newsletter called French Press, which you've been, the French Press, which you've been incredibly kind <laughs> to talk about. Oh, um, it's and- just the, the right publication for this moment in time. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And 
So I enjoy doing that. Uh, I also have a podcast called Advisory Opinions, which is is different from my newsletter. It's it's much more of a legal analysis. So if you like constitutional law, if you're interested in um, the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court, federal courts, this is the legal nerd podcast for you. <laughs> Wonderful. And, uh, Why didn't I know about it? I, I'm going there. Oh, you must. You must. I have and, a, and, uh, and how do we find it? It's just uh, Google Advisory Opinions podcast and my name, okay. David French. And I have a marvelous co-host, Sarah Isger. And she's a, she's a, a former DOJ spokesperson and um, fellow Harvard Law grad and just is and has an infectious love for the law. And so, uh, yeah, we, I really enjoy doing that podcast. And then you can follow me on Twitter at David A. French. Wonderful. Well, I can't get enough of you these days. I don't think the country can get enough of you. I certainly think the church, the people of God, will benefit from what you're serving up uh, from the French press and all the rest of it. Can't wait to check out the podcast. David, thank you for being faithful to the Lord during this trying time. Uh, in our nation's history. Thank you for your cogent arguments and your passion, your heart, which I know is for God's people, for the American people, uh, for our nation, for humanity. I read it all between the lines of what you write. And in that way, uh, you reflect. This is the highest compliment anyone in our universe can pay another. You are terribly Bonhoeffrian. Oh, so, my goodness. <laughs> thank you, my friend. Well, for... I appreciate that, but that's way, way... I do not merit those words, but I, uh, I appreciate you very much. Well, if not, you're getting awfully close. Any moment now, <laughs> any moment now. David, thank you for sharing this time with uh, the gang here at Shank Talks Bonhoeffer uh, for the Bonhoeffer Institute on behalf of our governors. I thank you, and I hope it's not the last time we have the opportunity to chat. I, I, would, enjoy, I would enjoy chatting again. Thank you, my friend. And folks, if you want to get more of David French and what he's serving up, uh, just look for all the links in the text surrounding this podcast. They'll all be there for you. Thanks, David. Blessings to you, your family, and your work. 